We spent last week rambling through the events leading up to Herod the Great's rise to power. And through that whole class, I pronounced John Hyrcanus's name wrong. It's Hyrcanus, not Hyrcanus. I do that sort of thing sometimes, especially if I forget to go back and read the name in the original language. I just read it, you know, like it sounds in English. So sorry about that. His name is John Hyrcanus. This week, we actually get to the Bible part of the story. As we left off last week, Herod, at the age of 36, had just been made sole king of Judea by the Roman Senate. He's defeated his enemies and married Mariamne, the love of his life, who also happens to be a Hasmonean princess. Here's what his kingdom covers at this point. You can see the Galilee region and the Sea of Galilee up there in the north, the region of Samaria in the center, Judea in the south with the capital city of Jerusalem at the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And the area in the south is where the Edomaeans have settled. They're the ones that used to be, that, that we used called Edomites um, in the Hebrew Bible. And they've kind of migrated around the tip of the Dead Sea. And so now they're taking up space in south of Judea. So Herod is from Edomaean stock and his family has been Jewish for several generations now, ever since they were forced by the Hasmoneans to convert. He's probably most famous for a grandiose makeover of the temple. This graphic shows the size of an American football field. This is the size of Solomon's temple, the great first temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when the Jews were carried off into slavery. And this is Zerubbabel's temple, the small temple the impoverished exiles built when they were finally allowed to return to Judea years later. They built it under extreme hardship, and it was so small that when the foundations were laid, those exiles who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple wept. And this is Herod's expansion of the temple grounds, all that blue. This includes all the courts and the porches and all the stuff he adds. So this is just like massive building campaign. The Temple Mount itself, the mountain is too small for Herod's plans. So he has the top of the mountain expanded by erecting walls and then filling them in with dirt. So this is like, like kind of as the construction goes along, they just build a foundation they just like it's amazing they make the top of the mountain bigger the, this is a scale model of it at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and you can see the old old town of Jerusalem behind it to get a sense of scale the footprint ends up being something like 35 acres you would think rebuilding the temple would endear him to the Jewish population right but it does not Herod is a self-professed Jew, but he has no respect for Yahweh. This grandiosity is all about Herod. Yahweh never asked for anything remotely like this. In fact, when asked, Yahweh has historically always opted for simple 
natural uncut stones stacked on top of each other in a heap. So clearly, Yahweh and Herod are not on the same page. To make matters worse, Herod has a large golden eagle placed over the gate of the temple. This is a desecration which enrages the Jews. And Herod has all sorts of other building campaigns going on. He fortifies many cities throughout his kingdom. In fact, you can see the Antonio Fortress at the corner of the temple. Now, the temple itself is facing us. It's facing east. So if we move around to the back of Jerusalem on the west side, we'll find Herod's palace and the three towers of the citadel he builds to protect the western entrance to Jerusalem. But Herod has several palaces scattered around his kingdom, including this incredible one at Masada. His palace is on top there. You, I, went, I went and toured it. Palace is overlooking the Dead Sea. Look how dry and high that is. He has a massive water system built to supply this palace. And of course, all this opulence and construction requires forced labor and mountains of money, money that comes straight from taxes. Tax collectors are a big deal in this economy, and Herod and his tax collectors are bitterly hated. But there's an even darker side to Herod. He is a jealous man and suffers from mental instability that increases as he ages. Remember that Antigonus, his mortal enemy, was the last of the Hasmonean rulers. And Herod has already handed him over to be executed by the Romans. Then his family friend, like this is his like, not really line uncle, but relationally, he's like an uncle to Herod his whole life. Um, his family friend, Hyrcanus, who is also a Hasmonean, returns from captivity in Babylon. He can no longer serve as high priest because his ears have been cut off, but he's surely glad to be back home finally. Unfortunately, Herod eventually puts Hyrcanus to death at the age of 81 for a supposed conspiracy against him. Meanwhile, at the urging of Mariamne's mother, Herod appoints Aristobulus III, Mariamne's 17-year-old brother, as high priest. So we still have a high priest who is Hasmonean. And it turns out the people love Aristobulus so much that Herod gets jealous and has him, quote, accidentally drowned while swimming. And Herod appoints a complete unknown, a, a commoner named Ananel as high priest. And there will never again be a Hasmonean high priest. That is the end of that. Things go downhill in the marriage after that. Mary Amney is super ticked off that Herod has killed her grandfather Hyrcanus and her brother Aristobulus. On top of that, every time Herod leaves the country, he locks Mary Amney up with instructions to the guard to kill her if he doesn't return. 
and he makes plans for his brother to succeed him rather than her. Mary Amney bitterly resents this treatment and lashes out, making fun of Herod's mother and sister for being low-born. And in the end, Herod executes Mary Amney and all her surviving relatives, thus ending any possibility of the Hasmonean dynasty rising again. Herod's mental state declines rapidly after he executes Mary Amney. He ends up executing a host of other people over the years, including three of his own sons, as he grows increasingly jealous and unstable as he nears the end of his life. It is right at this time, near the end of Herod's reign, that Jesus is born, somewhere between 6 and 4 BCE, at the height of Herod's cruelty and madness. We have an amazing amount of firsthand information about Jesus and even more secondhand information. He's a well-documented figure historically. He definitely lived, taught, and impacted the world at this time. The Bible contains four different tellings of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are called the Gospels, which means good story. Only Matthew, Mark, and John are firsthand accounts. All three of them were disciples. Now realize that from a historical point of view, we have very little verifiable information on any of these writers. Everything I'm telling you about the men themselves is just gleaned from bits and pieces of their stories. Matthew, also called Levi sometimes, is one of those hated tax collectors. Mark is younger and a little flighty, perhaps even a teenager at the time. He's sometimes called John Mark in the stories. John refers to himself in the stories as the one Jesus loved. He is basically Jesus's BFF. He's the one Jesus asks to care for his mother Mary after his death. Luke, on the other hand, likely did not know Jesus personally. Colossians 4 refers to a Gentile named Luke as being a beloved physician, but he may or may not have been this same Luke. Mostly we assume, traditionally we assume he is, but we don't actually know that. And there was definitely a Luke who accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Um, and that Luke is the Luke who is traditionally the author of both Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Those are kind of like part one and part two of a, a, a large work. So in any case, Luke's Greek is some of the best, most educated in the New Testament. And he definitely has both Mark and Matthew's versions available to him. How do we know that? Because he copies big chunks word for word. In fact, both Matthew and Luke copy huge chunks from Mark. And I don't mean just telling the same stories. I mean literally copying whole passages word for word. I learned in seminary that Matthew literally copies 97% of Mark. And Luke copies 88%. 
That's one of the ways that we know Mark's gospel is the earliest one. Here's an example. This is the story of the healing of a man possessed by an impure spirit. On the left is the version in Mark 1, and on the right is the version from Luke 4, both of them in the NIV translation. I've highlighted in red the words that are exact matches. I mean, exact matches in the same order, same words. You can see that Luke's version is longer. Look at the parts in black that Luke adds. In Luke, the man isn't just possessed by an impure spirit. Luke adds that it's a demon. Not that I think there's any big distinction between the two in the New Testament, but Luke adds all this demon language, making the whole story more dramatic. In Luke's version, the man doesn't just cry out. He cries out at the top of his voice. And the impure spirit doesn't just shake the man violently and come out with a shriek. The demon throws the man down before them all and comes out without even injuring him. So this is just one example showing how Luke's version seems to be embellished. And that's one reason why scholars think Luke's version is the later version. People often add embellishments when they retell stories but they rarely streamline the story. It's very unlikely that Mark copied from Luke. So modern scholars have theorized there may have been an even older source called Cavella, or Q for short, that all three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, copied from. Cavella is a German word that simply means source or spring of water. Well, one of the problems with this theory is that we found copies and fragments and parts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not a single copy of anything that might be Cavella. So I personally agree with an increasing body of scholarship that suggests that Mark was written first, then Matthew copied from him and added his own material, and then later, Luke copied from both Mark and Matthew. Each of these authors takes literary license with their work, incorporating written and oral sources. Matthew and Mark, as disciples, also probably incorporate firsthand experiences of their own. And each of their viewpoints is a little different. The Holy Spirit is definitely at work in all of this. But all this copying and embellishing means we don't want to hang our theology on a particular word or phrase from a single one of these writers. We want to dig deeper, compare versions, and get behind the words to understand what important truth the writers are trying to convey. The point is that each of these writers' stories are like gifts done up in wrapping paper. Each story has a different flavor. And inside of each present, the gift is a little bit different. So we don't want to get all tangled up in the wrapping paper. Wrapping paper would be things like cultural influences or particular terminology like demon or whatever. In, instead, we want to identify those things, notice them, but then dig to find the really important part, the gift inside. What is the message that is timeless and is not diminished 
as it moves from their culture to ours. Our backpack tools help us do this. Understanding things like the fact that Matthew and Luke copied from Mark help us sort this stuff out. You may have noticed that I haven't mentioned John yet. John's book is a different in flavor entirely. There's still some overlap, but it's not so much a, quote, life of Jesus gospel as it is a theological explanation of Jesus. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, which means they look at the story, you know, basically the same way. They're, they're histories. It's very little explanation added. They pretty much just relate the events. So that, so what I'm going to be doing is telling you the story of Jesus' life as a composite of the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I'll also be interleaving John's theological explanations and additional material that's found only in John as we go along. But even though the synoptic gospels approach the story the same way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the stories in a different order. <laughs> of course they do. How do we know which version is the chronological order? What's Which one is the right one? Well, the short answer we, is we don't know. But I doubt that Mark's is in strictly chronological order, and here's why. Mark's gospel is carefully arranged as a chiasm. Chi is the Greek letter that looks like an X. A chiasm is a popular writing technique where the events of a story are arranged so they lead to a central event, the most important point of the story. And then the events after that are a mirror of each event in the first half of the story, but with a twist. They are somehow transformed because of that central event. So, for example, Mark starts out with a statement that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It is Mark in Mark's gospel where Jesus keeps telling people to keep his actions secret. Like he does a miracle, he says, don't tell anybody. He does another miracle, don't tell anybody. That is Mark. So in Mark's intro, we the, leader, re, we the readers are let in on the secret. He tells us in the like prologue that Jesus is really the son of God. So we know before we read the story that Jesus is the Messiah. But the folks inside the story do not know that. It is a secret. Mark, Mark is all about the secret. So if this is truly a chiasm, we would expect something at the very end that takes what we read at the beginning in the prologue and gives it a twist. And sure enough, at the end of Mark, when Jesus dies, one of the men present looks at the cross and says, Surely this man was the son of God. So the secret revealed at the beginning in whispers to the reader is spoken out loud to everyone in the story at the end. The twist is that the man speaking is not a Jew nor even a follower of Jesus. He is a Roman soldier, the very ones who executed Jesus, not realizing who he really was. The secret is now known even by the Gentiles. It has been spoken aloud by empire. Pretty cool, huh?
And the center of the chiasm in Mark is the transfiguration, where Jesus is on top of a mountain and he's joined by Moses and Elijah. There's all sorts of symbolism going on. It's a hugely meaningful story that we'll get to later. But in Mark, the incident proves he, Jesus is the Messiah, and it is the central point on which the entire chiasm hinges. So I have a whole separate class that digs into the chiasm on, in Mark. We're not going to do that in our overview in the Gentle Ramble. This is, believe it or not, still an overview. There are two things to remember. One is that Mark is about the secret being revealed, and it is in Mark that Jesus keeps instructing people to keep their healing a secret. That language is not about Jesus. That is inserted by Mark as part of his literary device. The second thing to remember is that if Mark arranges his events so they create this elaborate chiasm, then he can't possibly have put them in chronological order, right? The first half of the story may be chronological, but the second half couldn't be because he he needs to cherry pick stories and events to match them up against the stories and events from the first half, right? See, see how that works? So what about Matthew? Matthew looks sort of chronological. He starts with the genealogy of Jesus and moves straight into the birth of Jesus. And the thing about Matthew is that he is intent on showing how Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. So he'll tell a story and then he'll say, this was to fulfill such and such prophecy. Even the particular stories he chooses to include often have to do with this overall driving purpose of proving that Jesus fulfills the Hebrew um, Bible prophecies. So his theme and therefore his structure is more theological in nature, kind of like, you know, John's is. So I don't know that I, I do say Matthew is necessarily chronological order. He could be, maybe, but perhaps not. So let's look at Luke. Luke backs all the way up to the conception and birth of John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus. Then Luke tells Mary's backstory, and then he tells about Jesus' birth, and Luke is the only one who even mentions his childhood. Plus, at the opening of his book, Luke says, lots of folks have tried to write up what the eyewitnesses told us. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and have written an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Well, we have no idea who Theophilus is. He's obviously paying Luke to write this up. But Luke himself is saying that this is a thoroughly researched and orderly account. So I'm going to assume that Luke's version is an attempt to be chronological. Now, he's not an eyewitness, so he doesn't know, but he's, he's doing his best. And given what we know about Mark's literary structure, we'd expect Mark and Luke's first halves to match pretty well if Mark is indeed telling his story chronologically in the first half. So Mark and Luke should match in the first half. But then after the transfiguration, we'd expect Mark's stories to be different. And that is exactly what happens. In fact, 
Luke has a ton of stuff in the second half of his book that Mark does not have precisely, I think, because Mark is limiting his stories in the second half to only those which fit into his chiasm. So in the second half, there's a lot of overlap between Matthew and Luke, but very little with Mark. That said, Mark's material, even in the second half, is still kind of scrambled because of his approach. So I'm going to assume that Luke's version is an attempt to be chronological. I'll stick with Mark and Luke's timelines in the first half and Luke's in the second half. I will put a timeline chart in your reference materials, aligning all the various passages so you can see what I'm talking about if you're interested in the details. So you may notice that all of the writers move from one story to another by saying, then Jesus did so-and-so. That is just a literary device, not it's, it's not necessarily indicative of chronology, so don't get hung up on that. It's just the writer trying to smooth the transition from one story to another. All this to say, it can be anybody's guess as to the chronology. I've explained my rationale to you, but you won't get any argument from me if you think the stories go in a different order. The order I'm presenting is a reasonable order. But again, don't get too hung up on the chronology. After all, that's not really the point, is it? So here we go. We'll start with John 1.1. John goes back all the way to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things were made. The word became flesh and lived among us. To all who believed in him, he gave the authority to be children of God, born of God. Wow, what an opening statement. So this is the framework for understanding who Jesus is. Calling Jesus the word has all sorts of wonderful meaning. It calls to mind Genesis 1, where God speaks creation into being. The Greek word is uh, for word is logos, which is associated with reason in the Hellenistic mind. We're going to explore that idea more in our breakout groups today. And I also love how Strong's Concordance defines logos as, quote, a word not in the grammatical sense, but word as uttered by the living voice. Beautiful. Luke's story begins with a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is barren and they're both getting elderly, but Zechariah has been praying earnestly that the Lord might still somehow, some way, give them a child. So at this time, the priests take turns serving in the temple and their assignments are scheduled by lot, by, by chance, which, which is how we've seen in the Hebrew Bible is a traditional Hebrew way of asking God to do the choosing. And the lot falls to Zechariah to go in and burn incense in the temple while all the people worship and pray outside. So Zechariah goes into the inner holy place of the temple all alone. Everything is perfectly normal until suddenly an angel of the Lord appears right next to the altar of incense. 
If you were in one of our previous class series, you'll know that usually when the Hebrew Bible says angel of the Lord, it's not talking about any old angel. It's talking about the Lord himself in human form. And when it just says angels, as opposed to angel of the Lord, those are usually just regular angels. But in the New Testament, that distinction does not seem to carry forward. We find out later that this angel is the great archangel Gabriel. Poor old Zechariah is scared half out of his wits by this guy suddenly appearing right next to him. And the angel says, don't do not be afraid, Zechariah. It's okay. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth is going to have a son and he is to be named John. He will be a blessing to you and to many people. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth and he will bring many of the people of Israel back to God. Now that's a pretty amazing promise. But then the angel tells Zechariah something else that has enormous significance. He says, he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will go ahead of the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will reconcile parents with their children and those who are wayward to the wisdom of righteousness. In this way, he will make the people ready for the Lord. So this is a big deal. You see, there is a prophecy in the Hebrew Bible in Malachi 4 that is a marker of the coming of the Messiah. Here's what that final chapter in Malachi says. A day is coming, burning like a furnace. Every arrogant person and evildoer will be stubble. Not a root or branch will be left to them. Well, as we talked about in our various class series in the Hebrew Bible, this fire is the refiner's fire of the Holy Spirit. We know that this is a fire that burns away all that is worthless or evil and leaves only the good. According to 1 Corinthians 12, this fire tests the quality of each person's work. But even if their work is found to be worthless, the person themselves survives the refining fire. That's a really important concept. Remember that works and bad deeds are burned away, but the person themselves survives. The passage in Malachi goes on to talk about God's people frolicking like calves and stomping on the wicked. And that's not a theological statement as much as it is imagery that reflects this ancient culture's view of victory and justice. The point is that the Lord will be victorious. Then the Lord says in Malachi, before that day, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or I will strike the land with complete destruction. Very similar wording to what the angel is saying to Zechariah. And this language about a great day in which God comes to set all things right is spoken about at great length in the Hebrew Bible. We've learned to watch for that phrase. It's actually one of our backpack tools. Anytime we see day of the Lord or in that day or anything like that, our ears perk up. And so did those of the Jews. This is a big red flag that God is talking about the end time last day. This is Messiah language. And that last bit about complete destruction 
is the Hebrew word cherem, which is a special word used when something is devoted entirely to the Lord as a burnt offering. The Lord is going to eradicate evil, including unforgiveness. Everything will be made holy one way or another. Now, even when this prophecy was originally written down by Malachi, the prophet Elijah had been dead hundreds of years already. So this has always mystified the Jews. Is Elijah literally going to rise from the dead and prepare the hearts of the people for God to come for the Messiah? Or does it mean someone like Elijah will come before the Messiah does? Well, there are people in both camps. So Zechariah is very familiar with this famous, famous passage in Malachi. So when the angel tells Zechariah that his son John will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and that he is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, Zechariah knows exactly what that means. It means the Messiah is about to come and the day of the Lord is at hand. He cannot believe his son will be the Elijah spoken of by Malachi. And Zechariah says, well, how do I know you're speaking the truth? I, I and my wife are very old. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I came to tell you good news. But since you have not believed me, you will not be able to speak until all this comes to pass. And poor old Zechariah is struck down. Now the people outside in the temple courtyard are like wondering what's taking Zechariah so long. All he's supposed to be doing in there is lighting the incense. When he finally comes out, he has to pantomime for them what happened. And sure enough, Elizabeth gets pregnant even in her old age. And she rejoices saying, the Lord has done this for me. He has regarded me and taken away my shame. For back then, it was considered a curse if a woman could not bear children. We know now, of course, that there are many reasons for inf infertility, including in the man, and none of them involve shame. But for Elizabeth, living in this ancient culture where a woman's worth is based on her ability to have children, the lifting of her shame is like a great light shining in the darkness. So we will leave Zechariah and Elizabeth in wonder and joy and go into our breakout groups to talk about this. All righty. I want to hear what y'all had to say about this. Or anything else, actually. I can start. Okay. On your first question. The first section of the question, do you think John was using the word logos as shorthand? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so what where do we have any here? doubt about that? <laughs> no doubt about it. Did anybody did did everybody agree on that? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so so uh, why would he use that term logos? What, why would he choose that? Well, one of the things that, that came up in our group was sort of a question of, you know, who is Theophilus? And 
given that it's a Greek name, was this someone who had been raised with or was familiar with Greek philosophy? And therefore, John is placing the story of Jesus in a context that a, a Greek or or maybe a group of Jews living in a Greek part of the empire would have been familiar with. Because um, I think it was Martha brought up the point, or maybe it was um, one of the others, that, that, that if these were Jews from Jerusalem or from Judea, you know, the Israel section of the world, um, they might not have been familiar with the Greek philosophy of Logos in this way. And it seems that this was maybe directed more at a Greek audience. So that is a very interesting point. So let me make one clarification. And that is that Luke was writing for Theophilus, not John. And John is the oh. one Logos. However, Never mind. the point <laughs> is well taken. No, 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 no. The point is well taken because by using this this term logos that is fraught with you know hellenistic meaning may be an indication that john is is expecting his his letter to be read, read by people who are gentiles and not just jews and certainly luke was you know definitely luke was expecting that so um, and, and we could say that Matthew was probably expecting his letter or his letter, his book to be read by Jews because he was like going back to the Hebrew Bible. Here's how it's typical. So different ways of looking at the material, depending on your audience. So you could have a Jewish audience, a, a Greek audience or Jews living in the diaspora, right out, out there outside of Judea or a blended audience um, where where you have some of both. That's a terrific point. What else? Seems to me that he was using the word logos to emphasize the the importance, the centrality of of of, of what he was saying. That that uh, I mean, I guess people would understand that logos was a fundamental concept, and that that Jesus was the physical representation of such a fundamental concept. Right, right. Interesting, interesting. Well, we had some conversation about the leap from this um, Greek setup, this very philosophical, or I'm not sure if it's philosophical or cosmological, one of the two, maybe both, <laughs> setup to the story of uh, Zacharias and um, how John the Baptist comes about the, the appearance of, of the angel. And Renee, I'm going to cue you up. <laughs> Here's your chance. I was just, it just hit me that possibly the, the there were two writers. Oh. One that did the, the cosmic Legos philosophical stuff and then the one that started the story. It is entirely possible that that um, parts of these stories were written by somebody else. 
which we could see clearly because they were all copying from each other. So they were using other source material. So it would not be surprising at all for one of these books to have copied in stuff that was originally intended for a Greek audience and copied in stuff that was originally intended for a Jewish audience. But also, I mean, since, since John was written in roughly uh, 90 uh, CE, I mean, he, may, he probably was not alive at that point. So it would have been written by perhaps one or more members of his particular group. Exactly. John could have had disciples. Traditionally, we think he lived, you know, that entire time um, that he was around. Uh, he would have had to have been young, you know, in, in his uh, friendship with Christ as a disciple. Um, and he ultimately became a pastor uh, and moved um, to Ephesus. He was pastor at Ephesus and then ended up being exiled to the island of Patmos um, late, late, late in his life where he wrote. I, I guess he, I guess he could have been, he could have been 80-ish mm -hmm. in year 90. So I guess he could have been still alive. What are the thoughts did y'all have? I was wondering whether or not the idea that Renee uh, had, had put out for us is supported by any stylistic changes in the writing is there different so from that introduction are there style differences that would indicate two different writers because if you took something that somebody else wrote and said oh these people over here really need to read this he just puts his little preface on it and then passes it all along as a as a whole do what what do we know about the linguistics i do not that? know the answer to that I, it's something I can look up, you know, and see if I can find anything on. I, I do, I do have a whole seminary library at my disposal. So, um, <laughs> I can't hard, try, they didn't really have copyright infringement laws back then. Clearly not. It was actually considered a compliment to, to copy someone else's work. In our group with the, in the beginning was the word and you can substitute many words here, you know, using the Lagos theories. And one I chose was hope. And the word hope was with God. And the word was God, you know, and hope was God. Because Jesus was our hope. He came to make things available to us that aren't weren't previously available to us. He he gave us a perspective so that when we face adversity, those of us that believe in our faith see a light at the end of the tunnel, whereas a lot of people might face that same adversity without faith, and they go down a trail of destruction and frustration because they don't see that light. And I think it brought perspective and perception to light for me. And the other thing was when you read this in the beginning was the word, which could be reason. And this is what I think I was looking to you for Woody was that that has always been there from the beginning, 
you know, and they say, and the word was with God, you know, you could substitute the, the word God in here. In the beginning was the God and God was with God and the, and the God was God. So that it kind of reinforces the concept of the Trinity to me, that it's always been there. And now he's coming to us in a human form so that we can understand that reason the word logos and we can then look forward does that make sense or did i just ramble <laughs> no at, at, and and that first uh, in first the last sentence in john where it says to all who believed in him he gave the authority to be children of god born of god so i think we talked about how that that we all have the authority to participate in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Yes. And that's so important and that we don't have to leave our reason behind, that it is part of our reason, that our faith and our reasons support each other. Um, and, and, and that, and that somehow these miracles of Jesus are going to make rational sense. So Julie put a a comment in the chat that uh, I'd like to pull out for conversation. She said there was a phrase not too long ago that was being brought forth that creation was done by intelligent design. And she hadn't heard that in a while. And it does um, kind of speak to um, the beginning of John, it seems to me. Uh, who's connecting back to um, to the creation story, certainly intentionally brought forth. But when we're talking about reason, I'm not sure how, uh, who and why intelligent design was so espoused, but somehow I think there is a connection. I, I suspect they connected with this beginning of John. Yeah, my understanding of the intelligent design philosophy or argument was that, okay, we'll accept that um, the universe is much older than just the account in the Bible and that evolution is real, um, but there was an active intelligence behind this whole process, and that intelligence was God who was directing the process. Right. Right. But, but anyway, this is just a big, it was, it was a wider, wider angle view (laughs) that I, then I thought you may have been aware of before. Um, Something I also wanted to point out was that Philo of Alexandria, that third bullet point there, Alexandria is in Egypt. He was a Jew living in Egypt. He was not a Christian. So the things he says about the firstborn son of God, he's not talking about Jesus in particular. He is, he, his concept of God and humans was that they were so far apart, there needed to be an intermediary was where he came to that from. But, you know, I'm not suggesting that we hang our theology on any of these. I am suggesting that the writers of the New Testament were influenced by these thoughts and ideas. This is part 
of the culture they lived in. So when they use words like logos, that's a, a, a key code word with a particular meaning, just like I'm pulling in the Old Testament scriptures and showing you, you know, like in Malachi, if somebody says reconcile the parents to the kids and the word Elijah in the same breath, the Jews are all going to know what you're talking about. So it's the same thing with Lagos. Um, and I think that we as Christians have missed that and often, not always, but that we have definitely missed the connection between reason and faith. Mm-hmm. I thought so, that um, because of the time frame entered, I didn't realize that Philo of Alexandria was in Egypt. I didn't know where he was, but he the fact that he was a Jewish philosopher, that that was common language, a common word in the language that encompassed all those things for them at that time. So they were able to get a wealth of information out of that particular word. Exactly. Exactly. So if you get a chance, go back and reread the entire chapter of um, John 1, the first chapter of John, and uh, we will see each other next week. We're out of time. See you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.